Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Timothy C.F. Stunt. Timothy is an independent scholar and author of a huge number of publications in the history of the Plymouth Brethren and other radical religious movements. His published work includes From Awakening to Secession, published by TNT Clark in 2000, for which he was awarded a Cambridge University PhD. He's the author of some 40 contributions to the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography and is uh, well known for his work on the history of the Brethren movement and also the biography of John Nelson Darby, one of its principal theorists. Timothy, it's great to have you on the show. Congratulations on the book. My pleasure to be with you. Today we're talking about your new book, which is called The Life and Times of Samuel Predo Tregellis, a Forgotten Scholar, uh, published by Palgrave Macmillan earlier this year. You've been working on this book for, for a long time. You tell us in the preface, some 60 years. But before we begin talking about the book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and perhaps some of the things that you've been working on um, over those number of decades? Well, I'm a retired teacher and uh, the, the victims who've been taught by me are, are teenagers. And uh, people always ask me why I haven't got a job in a university. Well, I like teaching teenagers, but 45 years of doing it was enough. And I'm, I'm now retired and I'm living in Florida, uh, where the temperature is far more agreeable for my body, which has undergone some serious surgery in uh, just five years ago. And um, uh, very, very thankful to be alive, to be to, to learn that for five years I've been cancer-free is uh, something worthy of, of, of rejoicing. Absolutely. And um, it's great that one of the consequences of that successful surgery has been the publication of this book, The Life and Times of Samuel Predo Tregellis. Could you tell us something about the background to this book and perhaps how it flowed out of your earlier work on the Brethren movement? Well, that's the interesting part about it, because it is my earlier work. I, I, I became interested in Tregellis before I became interested in the Brethren uh, I was brought up in, in the Brethren, and I know them from the inside, so to speak. But I got interested in Tregelis because I discovered his name at the, at the, at the introduction to a Greek New Testament that my father gave me on my 15th birthday. And when I tried to find out about Tregelis, he wasn't in my father's Encyclopedia Britannica, and my father sent me to the local library, and I found the Dictionary of National Biography, and I discovered that not only was Tregelis a scholar, but he also was a Plymouth brother for a time. 
And that was a, a, a worthy of celebration from my point of view because I grew up in the Brethren and was repeatedly faced with the question, are we peculiar because we are Brethren or are we Brethren because we are peculiar? And to discover that a world-famous scholar had been a Plymouth brother was a great discovery. Perhaps we weren't quite so peculiar as I thought we were. And um, I've been interested in Trigelis ever since. And curiously enough, it was through him that I got interested in the Brethren. And then I got interested in European evangelicalism and the whole thing burgeoned and became much, much, much bigger subject. But it started with Trigelis and I came back to him um, just after my surgery five years ago and got down to writing the biography that I'd been thinking about and researching for, for the previous 60 years. Well, that's, that, that, that's wonderful to hear. Um, as you thought about Trigelis, how important did you discern his family background among Quakers and also his his origins in the southwest of England? Well, the Quakers were a strange group of people. They were famous for their honesty and their integrity, but they were modest, retiring. They didn't go in the lime in in in, in the limelight. They they worked behind the scenes. They they were quietly industrious, and uh, that sort of morality is typical of of Trigelis through and through. Uh, he was an autodidact. He went to school, and he left school at about fifteen. And he didn't go to university, even though his headmaster would have liked him to, to try for university, because the Quakers were dissenters and weren't able to go to university. <clears throat> and the, being a, a, a fairly strict Quaker family, they they wouldn't have dreamt of them uh, becoming Anglican just so that their son could go to go to go to university. So he's completely self-taught, um, apart from his basic schooling when he did Latin and um, uh, like like everybody else. Um, I, I think that's a very important element in in his in his makeup. Um, you ask about his Cornish background. Yeah, he was born in Farmers, and he later on went to to Wales as a, as, a, as, a, as a teenager, and he got very interested in Welsh, the Welsh language. And there is an, there's a side to him which is involved with Celtic studies, and he's fascinated by uh, the Welsh language. He taught himself. Uh, Welsh at the same time as t teaching himself Hebrew and um, he was a very gifted linguist but whether you can say that it's a Cornish upbringing it's, it's, it's not really very significant though, though he chose to live almost in Cornwall in Plymouth for the rest of his life It's fascinating that he was so interested in Welsh uh, did, did he have any corresponding interest in Cornish Celtic culture? 
Well, he's interested in the... The, uh, the the French ramifications of uh, um, uh, his, 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 he, he visits Britain as, as an older man, and there his interest in 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 the old um, uh, Welsh stories, and he sees the parallels between the Welsh stories and and, and the, the, the early Frank, Frankish stories, but. Um, it, it it runs in parallel with his his, his biblical stories. Yeah. Well, you mentioned his biblical studies there, uh, Timothy. Obviously, uh, Trigellus, growing up in a Quaker family, had uh, a good knowledge of the Bible. But at some point, he became an evangelical, and you suggest in the book that sometime I think after his Hebrew studies begin. How did that happen? And what were some of the influences that shaped his early evangelical convictions? Well, his his early early life was very much a Quaker life, and the Quakers respect the scriptures, but they believe in the inward light, and they say that the, the spirit is really more important than than the, the word of the, the, the scripture. Um, Trigellius wasn't an evangelical Quaker. He was uh, uh, very much an an ordinary, old-fashioned, in a light Quaker. But he had a distant relation. His uh, his one of his distant cousins was married, or was planning on getting married, to B. W. Newton. Benjamin Newton, who also had been a Quaker, but who had had an evangelical conversion when he was a, 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 a young man at Oxford. And Tregellis met Newton and raised some questions that he had about biblical the, the the reliability of the Bible and Newton so impressed him that he uh, he should, soon afterwards he was had an evangelical conversion and he looked up to Newton as his mentor for the rest of his life uh, interestingly enough Newton lived for another 25 years after uh, Tregellis had died um, Newton a very individual, a very unusual individual, but who made a huge impression on on, um, Tregelis. And one thing that Tregelis adopted from from Newton's background was his complete faith in the scriptures. Uh, Newton was was a, a believer in plenary inspiration and what is apparent is that as, as soon as he had an evangelical conversion, Tregellis adopted the, the same attitude to the scriptures. They were totally reliable. And this re- marks him off from quite a lot of other evangelicals because as the century went on and as Tregellis grew older, he found himself more and more in a slightly isolated position 
by the by the uh, total belief in the total in, in, inspiration of, of of scripture and obviously his his commitment about his commitment to scripture was a key component of his evangelical faith wasn't it you show in the book that around the same time that he becomes an evangelical he identifies with a new religious movement in which newton was a leading figure this is the group known as the plymouth brethren uh, who, who were they were they very unlike the quaker uh, community that he had been part of and why did Tregellis identify with them? Well, he identified with them because they were, it was Newton's way of um, his, his ecclesiastical position. Newton had been a key figure in the establishment of the Brethren Assembly, as they called them, in, in Plymouth. And it was natural if he was converted through the, the, the testimony of Newton, Tregellis joined, joined in. But there were other Quakers who had joined in as well. <clears throat> and there are some similarities between the Brethren and the Quakers. What the, the one that most people know about is the fact that they don't have a, a formal liturgy. And they uh, their worship meetings are very spontaneous and um, uh, they would say spirit-led, uh, and uh, in that sense, there's a, there's a sort of Quaker atmosphere uh, which in which Trigger would have been at home. Um, but they are an unusual group of people. But we're dealing with the very earliest. Um, Tregellis was converted in about 1835, and the, the, the Plymouth Brethren, the original Plymouth Brethren Assembly, had only been in existence for three or four years. But in that assembly, he met a man called George Wigram, who was producing a concordance, uh, a, Greek, a Greek concordance and a Hebrew concordance. And this was just the work that... Tregellis was made for. He was a linguist. He was obsessed with detail and very, very systematic uh, and scholarly and a very good linguist. And uh, his commitment to and that concordance made him realize how important establishing the text of the, of, of the scriptures was and how how unreliable the, the, the standard translations and, and texts that, that, that were available, how, how unreliable they were. <clears throat> I think one of the things that your book does brilliantly, Timothy, is to show how intellectually exciting and stimulating these early communities of brethren must have been for young people like Tregellis coming into them for the first time. So if, if this was such an important part of his evangelical life, why did he eventually leave the Brethren? Well, that's a complicated question. <clears throat> the Brethren were a very mixed bag. You, if, if somebody asks you, what, what did the Brethren believe? Uh, or if somebody asked you, asked in 1835, what do the brethren believe? 
they the reply would have been, well, we tell you what they do and how they behave and what their church life is like. But some of them believe in this and some of them believe in that and some of them believe in the other. And uh, <clears throat> uh, Tregelis and Newton had a rather different attitude to church life and to uh, biblical studies than other ones in the Brethren. And particularly there was a, a, a collision between the strong character B.W. Newton, who was Trigelli's mentor, and John Nelson Darby, who is famously associated with, with the Plymouth Brethren. And as time went on, Newton found himself in a minority and there was a, a personal hostility from Derby, which uh, resulted in Newton being sidelined and being effectively um, excommunicated from the Brethren. And Tregelis chose to go with Newton and remained uh, for the rest of his life obsessed with what was wrong with the brethren rather than what, what how he, he, he admitted that he had been involved with them, but he, he had, he turned his back on them. Mm. And, um, in my book, I refer to it as, a, as something like a nemesis that, that he had this, uh, uh, he was looking over his shoulder all the time, looking back to the early days and trying to explain why he had been mistaken in the first place. So he, he, he emerges really as an intellectual figure within the Brethren community and his goal, very quickly identified goal, is to establish a critical text of the New Testament. Did he find that an easy project? He wanted somebody else to do it. And he, he's, he was very clear um, as he was getting going in, in his work of, of uh, textual criticism. <clears throat> He says in several places that he approached scholars whom he reckoned were much more learned than himself and said, why don't you do this? But none of them would accept the responsibility. So he, he said, okay, I'll do it myself. But he was very aware that he, he, he didn't have a university degree or he, he was given one later on, um, out of respect for his, his published work. But, um, he, he, he was an autodidact. He, he, he was self-taught. And, um, uh, and he was very aware of that, that in one, one place in, the, in his, in one of his letters, he says, um, that I'm learning as I go along. And, uh, uh, it, it would be so much better if somebody else who, who had the learning to begin with could, could, could do this work. And how did his more formally qualified colleagues view his contribution? Did they, did they help him? Did they want to be identified with it? Or did some of them perhaps feel threatened by it or even hostile towards it? Well, one in particular felt threatened by it, and that was his, his often considered to be his rival, um, Constantine von Tischendorf. Um, but Tischendorf was a very self-centred Man, he he was uh, he was very ambitious. Uh, Trigenis wasn't really ambitious. He he saw his work of producing uh, a reliable text of the scriptures as something that he was doing 
for the church, for, for Christians everywhere. And he always said, my work is available for anybody who wants to use it. Um, he, he wasn't really in, the, in, in any, in, he wasn't consciously in a, in a rat race with, with, with Tischendorf. But Tischendorf felt threatened by his rivalry. In contrast to Tischendorf, there were several English scholars who, like William Curiton and uh, Hort, Westcott and Hort, and um, um, later on uh, Bishop um, Christopher Wordsworth, Trigillis was on good terms with these people, Hort particularly. And um, Hort was a younger man, and he looked up to Trigellis and said, said um, uh, I, I feel rather sorry for Trigellis because he's stuck there down in Plymouth all, all on his own, and everybody there um, thinks he's sort of rather strange because he hasn't got any scholars around him uh, with whom he can share his work. Um, and... By and large, the other the other the other scholars respected what he did, and and they valued what he did because Tregellis, in the case of West Westcott and Hall, Tregellis made available even before his his the, the volumes of his um, Greek New Testament were published, he 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 made the the the, the proof pages available for Hall to consult uh, even before they were published. His, his relationships with these colleagues in the field are quite remarkable in the way you describe them in the book. Tischendorf comes across almost as an acidic critic, whereas Hort, as, as you've just indicated, um, seems genuinely to admire the older man, Tregellis, and perhaps even to feel sorry for him in some respects. Does that give us any clue as to what Tregellis was like as an individual? Well... Yes, it does, because Trigellis, uh, I admire the man because he's a scholar, but I don't think he was a very, he was necessarily the nicest person to know. Uh, he could be sarcastic. He didn't suffer fools gladly. If people, um, got it wrong, as, well, as he saw them, if he thought they were wrong and, and they'd made a mistake, he didn't let them off the hook and say, oh, well, we'll make allowances. He, 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 he stood up for what he believed to be true. And, and my goodness, when Trigelli's believed something was true, he really believed it. And he defended it to, the, to, to his dying day. And he made a lot of, um, I wouldn't say enemies, but he isolated himself from people because people said, um, well, you can't really argue with Tregelis. He knows his stuff. And uh, given his basic starting point, he's consistent. Uh, but he didn't make friends that way. And both he and Newton, in the, uh, as, as the years went by, are more and more and more isolated, not just from people who, uh, not just from non-evangelicals, but even from uh, the, 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 the holiness movement associated with uh, Keswick and um, 
that 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 variety of Christianity. Tregelius was very impatient with them. He he called them dreamy, sentimental uh, Christians. They're not interested in truth. He said they're just interested in having having nice, warm feelings for each other, and they 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 they're not concerned about truth. And he and Newton both become more and more isolated as 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 they go on. And yet, as your book shows, for for all that he was an isolated figure. And for all that Tregellis was also suspicious of lowering doctrinal standards, he was also quite surprisingly ecumenical in some of his friendships, wasn't he? And he must have been one of the very few Englishmen to have met the Pope. <laughs> yes, indeed. And um, he only met the Pope. He, he, he felt the need to uh, apologise for having met the Pope. He... he, he 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 was aware that that wasn't what he was really um, what, that wasn't something he could be proud of, and he only he only met the Pope because he was desperately trying to get access to the, the Codex Vaticanus in the in the Vatican Library. <clears throat> but on the other hand, as you say, he did meet a lot of scholars, and although he was very rigidly, uh, fervently anti-Roman Catholic. He was critical of Roman Catholicism, and he, uh, it's not too strong a word to say, he hated the Roman Catholic system. I I emphasize the word system because he repeatedly met delightful Roman Catholic scholars in in, in, uh, German libraries and Bavarian libraries and Italian libraries. Uh, he repeatedly met these Roman Catholic scholars who were who charmed him, and who helped him, and who were extremely cooperative. Uh, and the, his experience in Rome with the Codex Vaticanus is not typical. He, in in Rome, they didn't cooperate. They didn't they they, they didn't let him consult the, the Codex Vaticanus. But elsewhere, in in his travels in Europe, he he, he met very very. He he discovered a, a, a fellowship of scholars, um, which didn't worry about labels. So some of them were Catholics, and even more remarkable, some of them didn't believe in the plenary inspiration of the Bible, but he discovered that they were scholars and that they, and they were very, very charming with it. There's one particular example, De Wet, whom he met in, in Rome, and, but who was, who was a professor in Basel in, in Switzerland and who was very helpful for, for Trigetis. And Trigetis kept on saying uh, he, how, how, how much he appreciated the man. <laughs> even though I can't agree with his views on scripture. Very good. Well, obviously, Tregellis's work on his textual criticism was very much impaired by his health, wasn't it? He had to take numerous visits to various locations to to try to improve his health. And you describe in, I think, quite a moving way uh, the stroke that he suffered uh, towards the end of his life and the way in which um, his life came to a rather premature end. Can you tell us a little bit more about the circumstances of that? 
Well, his real weakness physically, okay, he had a stroke and he had two strokes, one from which he virtually recovered and one from which he never recovered. But long before that, he had serious problems with his eyesight. Um, we know that at the age of 40, he was, he was wearing spectacles. We just happen to know because somebody describes him um, in, in a particular year and, and we can work out his age from, from, from that fact. But his eyesight was weak and he frequently refers to his un- inability to, to, to work for long periods of time. Um, and the, 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 the headaches that go with it. And one suggestion has been made that it, that it was aggravated by the chemicals which he used to decipher uh, the Codex Dublinensis, um, which, was, which is a palimpsest, and to read the writing underneath he, he used a, 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 a chemical treatment, and this, this, this may have aggravated, aggravated his eyesight. But um, you're quite right. He, 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 was, he wasn't a, a strong man, and um, this attention to, I mean, of, of all things, to have bad eyesight when you're dealing with the minute eye of text and reading palimpsests, badly written, 700-year-old uh, manuscripts, um, that's that's a, re- a recipe for for for, for, for problems. Yeah. Now you you tell us in the subtitle to your new book, "The Life and Times of Samuel Prideaux Tregellis," that Tregellis is a forgotten scholar, and yet he also has an important legacy, doesn't he? And in some ways, that legacy is beginning to be rediscovered. That's right. He's. Uh, he was a forgotten scholar because his Greek New Testament came out just at the same time, or just just before um, the revised version of the Bible, which was based on the scholarship of, of Westcott and Hort. And Westcott and Hort's Greek New Testament has always overshadowed Trigetti's, um partly because they expounded their their theory of transmission uh, very ably and um but they were they were in favor with the, with the establishment and so Trigelli's um contribution it is a, a, a sort of also an also ran running along beside um, the, the other work. But um, what is curious in in the situation today is that when most scholars have abandoned the idea of plenary inspiration and, and are even saying that it's, it's, it's an impossible task to try and work out what the original text of the scriptures were, um, they... They've come up with a, 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 a new technique of uh, textual criticism, which 
I don't understand because I'm not I'm not a, 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 a linguistic scholar, and um, what I'm a bit relieved to discover is that almost nobody else understands it either, uh, and it has the the the, the, the very um, uh, intimidating title that they they call it the coherence based genealogical method, and it is establishes families of manuscripts and their their descent from previously previous earlier manuscripts and in in establishing that they they can use computers to find out the frequency of certain variations and so they can Work out which are the earliest and which was which which was the original text, and they've done this on the Catholic epistles, um, and uh, they've actually published the Editio Critica Maior uh, for, for for the Catholic uh, epistles, and um, one of the great textual scholars, David Parker, has um, done a close study of the Book of James. As it's found in the Editio Critico Maior, and he finds that it repeatedly seems to come up with the same text as Tregelis came up with for, for, for the Book of James, and he's, he's even suggested that the the, the the new text could be called the New Tregelis, whereas most scholars would have said, "Oh, it, it's the New Tischendorf," but. Um, uh, apparently, I, I, I speak as, uh, as, a, as an ignorant person when it comes to linguistics, um, but apparently it, it, his text is, it looks as if it may be vindicated by, by this new uh, research method. Fascinating. Tregelis gets the last laugh. Well... I don't think he was very good at laughing. <laughs> I, I, I think he was um, he was a, basically a very serious man, um, but he could get enthusiastic, and so sometimes there's one, one splendid little passage in one of his letters where he where he says um, um, these people were complaining uh, about textual criticism. They were saying oh, and they, they were mocking. The textual critics and said, "When when the Lord returns uh, uh, at the, the second coming, there'll be some people so busy trying to establish the text that they won't uh, that they won't be ready for him." And Tregelis, in self defence, said, "said to these people, has it ever occurred to you that it's not exactly biblical to have a printed Bible <laughs> because there's no reference to having the scriptures in print." Uh, uh, in, 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 the, in the early, early years of the church. I was, uh, I was really struck by the anecdote that you um, include in the book, Timothy, where the party of ladies comes to visit Tregellis and his wife and they ask one or two innocent dinner table conversation type questions about textual criticism. And he rushes off to the study and brings back all these tracings of manuscripts and treats them to a full lecture on the <laughs> principles of text criticism and the difficulties that he encountered. The, the interesting thing about that story is that 
that the ladies in question were his distant cousins and they had played with him when they were kids and in and in the letter the, 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 the one of these middle-aged cousins says this was our little prid as they called him as they called him when he was only as a child this is this is our, our little prid holding forth with this huge enthusiasm sounds like a wonderful evening doesn't it well, Timothy, yeah. thank you very much for your time. Thanks for coming on to the, the show and talking about this really important new book, The Life and Times of Samuel Prido Tregellis, A Forgotten Scholar, just published by Palgrave Macmillan. Thank you for your time and take care. Thank you. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. Mm-hmm.